Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. When you listen to or sing the Star Spangled Banner, what do you feel? Patriotic and proud or excluded and oppressed? Okay, those are two extremes. But as music professor Mark Clegg writes in his book about the national anthem, it's a song that has a complicated cultural history. And that history visits with all of us in really different ways. We'll talk about his book and his research and maybe do some singing of our own. That's next on Detroit Today, but after the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. That, of course, was Jimi Hendrix playing his alternative version of the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock in 1969. Drive around Detroit and our suburbs and you'll notice something interesting. Most of the time, the outwardly patriotic among us are the most conservative among us. The trucks and cars and homes that sport the American flag seem most frequently to be supporters of Blue Lives Matter or Donald Trump or Republicans in general. Of course, part of the reason that's true is that uh, we are deeply split right now over our symbols, our statues, our flag, and our national anthem have all become kind of markers for who you are and what you believe, not just the fact that you happen to live in and may be a citizen of the United States. And, of course, lots of liberals, progressives, are doing the questioning of some of these symbols. They're discussing what kinds of stories and heroes We should be dignifying in our public squares, and we wonder whether some of our symbols should be reformed or abandoned altogether for their hateful or misguided origins. But American symbols are always in flux, and many of the things that we've come to cherish have already been altered throughout history. They've been interlaced with different traditions and influenced by folks from a variety of backgrounds. Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner is just one of those examples. This is part of what Mark Clegg writes about in his new book, Oh Say Can You Hear? He's a University of Michigan professor of musicology, and he explores the Star Spangled Banner and how its changes over time have reflected various traditions 
within the American experience. He begs a lot of questions during a time when we struggle to agree. What can unite us as Americans? What symbols and stories is it okay to unify behind? And which ones are we able to come together around? Also, what should we be reforming in our current moment? What are the songs and traditions that make us proud to be American? Is it okay to be proud to be American? And does that mean the same thing if you're a liberal or a conservative, if you're black, white, Latino, if you're rich or poor? That's where we want to begin the conversation today. And we've got Mark Clegg with us to talk about it. Professor Clegg, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Pleasure to be with you and great introduction. I loved it. Thank you. So I, I before we get started, I want to say that uh, I am somebody who's done a lot of thinking about uh, the Star Spangled Banner, partially because uh, I lived in, in Baltimore for a good part of my adult life. And of course, it was in Baltimore's Harbor that Francis Scott Key wrote the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner while hiding out uh, in a ship during the War of 1812. I also lived uh, in a neighborhood where the Keys lived, uh, where they owned a lot of property. And for a time, in fact, uh, I owned a house where the mirror in the front hall had a little plaque next to it that said it had belonged to Francis Scott Key uh, and was in his bedroom when he died. I say all that to, to sort of introduce the idea of this song and this anthem as being intrinsically connected, not just in Baltimore, but everywhere, to a person, Francis Scott Key. I mean, you cannot go many places in Baltimore without seeing the key name in many, many different places, uh, even today. So let's start there. There are a lot of myths about the national anthem and specifically about Francis Scott Key. Talk about what those are and how the national anthem really gets kind of written and manifest into uh, the, the, the fabric of what it means to be American. No, great questions. And I, I think, you know, like you, I got imbued with a lot of sort of patriotism as a kid. I mean, I was, I was nine years old in, in 1976 for the bicentennial. We have the 250th birthday of the country coming up in a couple of years. You know, and this is a time where a lot of these myths and ideas and ideals are rehearsed, right? And I, and I do think there's a, there is a practical function to patriotism, which is to, to give this kind of <clears throat> overarching identity. I mean, in a country as huge as ours with 300 plus million people, I mean, it's no longer about your neighbors and just shaking hands. It's the, the country's brought together by these symbols, by these myths that sort of link us together. And a lot of those myths are surround Francis Scott Key and the writing of the Star Spangled Banner. My book tries to correct some of those. I mean, as a kid, I certainly was taught that Francis Scott Key wrote a poem that, that later became connected to music, that he was a prisoner aboard a British ship during the battle. Um, that the anthem sort of came to him in a flash of inspiration after sort of witnessing the flag at dawn. And all those things are sort of true, but sort of a little bit off. I mean, he did not write a poem that was set to music. He wrote a song, mm -hmm. which is that he wrote a set of words to fit a melody that already existed that he knew, and he matched the words to that particular tune. 
He was on board an American ship, his own American truce ships. He was under British guard, so certainly a prisoner, but not not surrounded by British cannon, as is often shown in, in pictures. And uh, he wrote it over the better course of three days as a pretty thoughtful political statement, even from the very beginning. He's calling for unity and a strong country, and all of these things did not exist in 1814. We were you know, a very loose conglomeration of states. The federal government was very weak. We didn't have much of a military. Britain was harassing Chesapeake Bay and, you know, burned the federal buildings of Washington, D.C. down to the ground as an insult to the country. And they were attacking Baltimore, which was a, a sort of um, shipyard and a, you know, place where a lot of the Baltimore Clippers, these really fast ships were raiders, were harassing the British um, ships. So they were going out for revenge and really trying to burn Baltimore to the ground. So it's the heroism of the defenders of Fort McHenry, which guards um, the, the harbor in Baltimore, as you know, and that, that sort of stopped that battle and, and prevented um, Baltimore from being taken. So that's the sort of, you know, the, the moment that Francis Scott Key is memorializing. And he does it in a really abstract way. I mean, part of it is he's on a boat. He doesn't have any information from what he can see through his spyglass. He sees the flag is still there. He knows that America is victorious, but he doesn't know who the players were. He doesn't know the names of the soldiers. He doesn't know... What happened? So he writes in this abstract way, symbolizing the flag as sort of the central image of this lyric. And because the, the lyric is so sort of general and abstract, it, it could exist over time. So that's part of the reason why we can still sing the Star Spangled Banner today. If he had talked about, you know, uh, Major Armistead, who was, you know, commanding the fort, if he had talked about the particular, you know, Robert Ross, who was killed, um, British major, who was killed by American sniper, and sort of turned the battle. Any of those details wouldn't have made the lyric too specific for that moment. Mm-hmm. So that's that's at least the background of the song. Mm-hmm. And and the background of the guy, Francis Scott Key. Uh, in recent years, lots of people have started to point to his history, his complicated uh, history, as many people of the time had, and his connection to American slavery. Uh, and a lot of people have said, look, uh, this is one of the things we ought to be reconsidering right now, which is, uh, you know, whether somebody who has that as part of their history should be as revered as uh, as they are. Talk about Francis Scott Key and slavery and how slavery figures into the anthem itself. Yeah, there have been protests over the two. There's only a handful, a small number of Francis Scott Key monuments in the United States. One was in San Francisco, which was actually toppled on June 10th in 2020. And then um, another one is in Baltimore. I mean, there's a sort of a depiction in bronze of, of Key seeing the flag. And that particular monument was, was spray painted and, um, you know, red paint was, was dumped into the water that surrounds it um, to, you know, recall the sacrifice and the, this violence against black Americans during the, the era of slavery in the United States. Francis Scott Key himself, you know, is a figure I've struggled with um, for the same reason. I mean, is this a topic we should be talking about? Is, is it something that I should spend all this time writing this book about? And trying to understand who Key was. Um, he's a complicated figure, and I think in, in some ways is on both sides of the slavery issue. And he definitely owned slaves. Um, his wife was a descendant of one of the largest slave-owning families in, in Maryland. Um, his brother, or her brother, actually um, had Frederick Douglass among the the enslaved people living on his plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's strange about Key, however, is that he's not a he's not a, a plantation owner 
per se. He's a lawyer in Washington, D.C., which puts him in a complicated position because slavery is legal in the United States. And Washington, D.C. has a large free black population, but also an active slave market. And so as a lawyer, um, he's actually appointed uh, the district um, attorney for the district, and he is responsible for defending the institution of slavery. The other interesting thing about Key, which is not well known and which, you know, fortunately I was able to figure out from the district court records, is that Key volunteered his services in over 106 cases fighting for the freedom of black Americans and won about 38 of those cases, including the um, slave ship Antelope trial. So he was personally responsible for the freedom of at least 189 people. So. You know, he's on one hand fighting for freedom of people he believes are unjustly enslaved, and then he's also defending the rights of slave owners in in court as well. So he doesn't fit the sort of easy categories of, you know, good guy, bad guy today. I think part of it is that he was misguided and, you know, certainly on the wrong side of history, but he was looking for a way to ameliorate the suffering of black Americans and to end slavery, but in a way that nobody got hurt. And of course, that was a fiction. That was impossible. It took a civil war to end slavery in the United States. Yeah. And so um, he, you know, I think is a problematic figure. But, you know, when I think about the problems we have today about, you know, like immigration and the way in which there's so many people today who are defined as not Americans, right, as not citizens. And we guard that line in, in a similar way that it was guarded um, in 1814. And, and so in a, in a way, I feel like some of the injustice today is actually not that far away. I mean, slavery, of course, is horrific and, and beyond, you know, human justification. But it's, it's you know, I think some of the way in which immigrants are treated is a, is a similar issue. So it's, um, you know, I, I sort of think of it in, in context of the time. And he, to me, seems like a remarkable figure because, because he tried to do something about slavery. And I think many people in that era didn't. So I'd... I see Key as sort of an interesting figure, and it's something that tells us about the tension and the disagreement that was clear. It's, people were not always just on one side or the other of these issues. People were sometimes caught in the middle. Yeah. And, and slavery plays a role in the anthem itself, and it's not a role that we're taught a lot about in school. I mean, you have to kind of go out and find on your own where slavery appears in, in the Star-Spangled Banner, and there's some argument, I guess, over how important that that stanza is. Talk about the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. Yeah, so the, the third verse, I mean, there's four verses to the Star-Spangled Banner, and it's the original lyric. And um, we only sing the first verse at Tiger Stadium or at the Big House here in Ann Arbor. Um, but there are three other verses. The third verse um, sort of vilifies the British enemy, and it has a, a really troubling line in it. Um, no refuge could save the hireling or slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And so, including the word slave and rhyming it with, with grave, and, and it, you know, it's, it's really provocative and concerning. Like, why is slavery being invoked in the national anthem? And I think this, you know, in many ways, it it signals the way in which slavery is embedded in American history, um, that slavery is, in many ways, the defining historical moment of what American democracy has, you know, tried to accomplish. And African Americans and, and the, the demand for freedom and equal rights during the Civil War, you know, as Hannah Nicole Jones says, is, is really the defining characteristic. It's what held, has held America to account of its, of its own constitution, its own ideals. But 
one of the things I did is really look into the history of that word and what it might mean in that stanza. Um, and the thing that surprised me, I mean, there's sort of three interpretations. One is that it refers to the colonial Marines who were escaped black men who fought on the British side, very valiant and important fighters um, that allowed the Chesapeake campaign on the British side. And that's, I think, the way it's, it's usually interpreted. Um, the other thing that surprised me is that if you look at early American patriotic poetry, um, the word slave is actually quite common. Um, and it's, it's used in a different way than we would today. Um, can't imagine using that word and not refer to actually the, the real people who were enslaved. Mm-hmm. But the, the critical issue for the revolution, for the War of 1812, which is sometimes called the Second War of Independence, was freedom from Britain. And Britain had a king, a King George, actually, in both wars. Um, and so the word slave was used rather, you know, callously in a certain way by um, American citizens who were white men, right? And women couldn't vote. African-Americans couldn't vote. Um, but white men were talking about their resistance to being subject to King George. So in, in Francis Scott Key's mind, I think the way he probably meant that word was that the British soldiers, who he was mocking, were both hirelings. They were professional soldiers fighting for spoils of war, and they were slaves in that they were doing the bidding of their king. They were vassals who didn't have the free will to make their own choice. In contrast, the American were militiamen who were fighting, you know, for their homes. They were defending their country. They were defending their values. They were honorable. They were free thinkers, right? And so they were being contrasted with the the bad guys, the British, the Americans were the good guys. So sort of unimaginable that Francis Scott Key or anybody would use the word that way today. But I think that's probably how most Americans, of course, being, you know, white Americans at that time, Mm -hmm. who would have been the ones who were literate, who were buying the newspaper, who were participating in this political discourse through song, um, they probably would have understood the word slave to refer to being subject to a king. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this really interesting conversation with Mark Clegg of the University of Michigan and author of Oh Say Can You Hear. Uh, We're going to talk a little more about the Star Spangled Banner, about Francis Scott Key, about American history and symbols and whether we can come together around all of those things or whether they are divisive. We want to hear from you as well. Give us a call and tell us what you make of the Star Spangled Banner? Is it something that you get excited to stand up and sing at sporting events? Or is it something that you shy away from because of its history and its association right now with the political struggle that's going on in our nation? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is Mark Clegg. He is a University of Michigan professor of musicology and author of Oh Say Can You Hear, a cultural biography of the Star Spangled Banner. We are having a conversation about the banner and other symbols in our country, what they mean, what we think they mean, whether we can agree 
on what they mean and whether they unite us, whether they are symbols that bring us together or symbols that reflect the profound divisions that exist between us right now. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. What do you think of the national anthem and what does it make you feel when you hear it? at a baseball game or a football game? Are you someone who stands proudly with uh, your hand over your heart and sings the world, the words loudly? Or are you somebody who, who sits all of that out? Uh, think how recently we had an incredible national argument about uh, Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, and his insistence on taking a knee during the Star-Spangled Banner at football games as a way of protesting the brutality that African-Americans face at the hands of police. Uh, lots of people were really, really upset about that. Other people were really, really moved by it. Uh, it's a great example, I think, of how difficult it is to think about these symbols in a consistent and common way. Uh, right now. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we can uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. I want to start with a couple of social media comments. Big Neo says, I'm a citizen and member of the U.S. Air Force. I do love America, and I get chills when I hear the anthem. Even with all the negative things that have happened in the past and continue to happen, I will always hope and pray for things to get better for all U.S. citizens. Amanda on Twitter says, an anthem should be lively, memorable, and easy to sing and extol aspirational virtues of the country. America the Beautiful almost gets there. Change the God line to our land of liberty, and you've got something. Uh, again, you can go to Twitter and uh, put comments there. We can always include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today, though, on the phones with Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, what's on your mind? Hi. Hey. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So I, I'm I'm going to make three quick points. Uh, I um I would say that I'm liberal. I uh, choose to put three thoughtful things on my uh, my telephone or on my car, you know, uh, stickers. Uh, but I also have an American flag. Uh, one particular time, I was stopped by somebody who put together that they didn't like the flag matching my little. Uh, uh, bumper stickers and said I had no right to have that flag on my car. Point number one. Hmm. Okay. Point number two. I'm in a position where I talk to some police cadets and I will talk to police officers and I beg them do not continue to use and promote the flag as a thin blue line. It's divisive. We have a red, white, and blue uh, flag. You wear it on your uniforms, and it's got blue in it. So, so just be proud of that. But don't give us a thin blue line in a blue flag that tries to say something else. Hmm. And then on a uh, that that's ten on a scale of ten. This is two on a scale of ten for me in <laughs> terms of importance. I just don't like bathing suits that take the flag and make it look like the flag bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> you don't what like the flag friends? bathing suits. <laughs> that, <laughs> Dennis, I, I, I love the call, and I love that last little little beef of yours. Uh, I, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to American flag bathing suits, but I guess if if it's a, if you think of it as a sacred symbol, maybe that uh, 
maybe that seems seems inappropriate. Uh, Mark Clegg, I'll give you a chance to react to the things that that Dennis is talking about here. I think they're really emblematic of the 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 wide spectrum of reactions and feelings that people have around again all of these symbols not just the anthem but also the flag no absolutely and i think you know one of the interesting things is we've been uh, shouting at each other and arguing over uh patriotic symbols really at least since 1798 and uh which was in the administration of john adams the second president and there was this battle between the Democratic Republicans, who were sort of Jefferson's, Thomas Jefferson's party, and the Federalists, who were John Adams' party. And so I guess one of the things that history gives us is a little bit of perspective. And I see that the partisanship of today is really have a long American tradition in some ways. I think, you know, one of the things that did trouble me, I think it's the same thing that troubled Dennis, which is that if we take patriotism to be a kind of partisan, a dividing symbol, um, you know, in some ways, I think we've we've gone the wrong direction, right? That for me, the the Star Spangled Banner is a living symbol, and I think that's part of what someone like Hendricks does when he brings it to life in a new way to say new things in 1969. But you know, Kaepernick is doing the same thing. The, the way John Batiste is doing the same thing today, you know, the, the way in which the anthem actually sort of is a mirror, it reflects and responds and resonates with us as we bring it to life in performance anew, again and again and again. So, to me, in some ways, the that Star Spangled Banner is like a living symbol. It's something that's always relevant in comments because we can, you know, great artists can bring out new meaning in the song. And and for me, that that's a kind of call to participation, a call to citizenship. If if we all get involved in the democracy, that's sort of what the flag is, or flag and the, the anthem are calling us to do. And so that participation is nonpartisan. I mean, it's 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 to to get involved and to make the country live up to its its aspirations. That hope. That came in and with some of those other social media contacts, you know, that's that I think is what the anthem is really about. And and for me, that that gives us the, the chance to to answer the question that it asks. I mean, one of the things we forget about the anthem is that the, the verse we sing actually ends in a question mark. It says, you know, for Francis Scott Key, that was literal, like, is the flag still there? Is the hope and dream of America still alive? But I think, you know, when we sing it today, when we have it performed at, at sporting events or graduations or other civic ceremonies, you know, we can ask and answer that question for ourselves. Like, what what does it take for us to be brave enough to live up to our ideals of freedom? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis, uh, really appreciate the call. And next time I see a American flag bathing suit, I'm going to think of you uh, and your your absolute grievance against that. Thanks very much for for calling in. Uh, let's go next to Ed in Detroit. Ed, what's on well, your mind? I'm I'm old enough to to remember. In fact, I have friends who are put in jail for using a flag with something other than a flag. Mm-hmm. And technically, it's still not supposed to be done, but let's move away from that. I'm very proud of the flag, proud of the country, warts and all. Uh, I, I, A great teacher taught me years ago that you don't start the analysis of history with the understanding that all people have feet of clay, but it's always in the background of your analysis of history, nothing is nothing is fine. You have to figure out how you're going to thread the needle. Um, Key was a slaveholder, but he also fought for the liberty of, of, of slaves. He was a member, although not overly active, of the colonization society to help free people go to Africa. Um, 
And and the way I can thread that needle, because slavery was legal, I don't get in too many arguments over that question. I quibble with Jefferson because as a young man, he once proposed manumission of slaves Mm -hmm. in Virginia. And so my argument is that Jefferson walked away from his youthful enthusiasm, but mostly because he, he was broke and he needed slaves to keep putting food on his table. I tend to argue with the Confederate uh, senior officers. They took an oath to the United States. Many of them were members of the U.S. Army. They broke that oath. They stood with the rebels in favor of treason and disunion. And I say put their monuments in the History Museum. I'm not going to argue over who the slave owners should or shouldn't be in the public square. It means getting rid of a whole bunch of early presidents. A country that doesn't honor... It's, it's heads of state. It's a country that I have questions about whether they really see themselves as a country. Right, right. Uh, Ed, Thank uh, you. Uh, very thoughtful uh, set of ideas there, and I'm, I'm glad you called. Um, so, so, Mark, I think, you know, we've talked a little about slavery and, uh, and the anthem and, and American history, of course, but I, I think what Ed is kind of reminding me of is that these are questions that cast forward into the into the present as well. They make it difficult for us as African Americans to to kind of reconcile with the flag. And I'll get, I'll give you an example. I mean, I I, I obviously um, have really strong feelings about the inequality that exists in in America and the ways in which it plays out. And I was all for Colin Kaepernick doing what he did and and refusing to back down, in fact, to the NFL owners who, who didn't want him uh, doing that because I, I felt like uh, it was an important statement. It was a it, it was true about what was what was going on. At the same time, one of my most vivid memories from childhood uh, is when my father died and at the funeral, um, a member of uh, the U.S. military was there to, uh, to present him, to present our family uh, with a flag because he had served in Korea and, in fact, was being buried at the National Cemetery in Natchez, Mississippi. And I can remember feeling a sense of pride about that and and really being excited about about that flag and it is that dichotomy i guess that we have to live with and and sort out neither one of those positions is wrong but they certainly present a natural a natural tension with each other and i think that's part of the problem that we have as as a nation is is figuring out how all those pieces can can fit together and they look different for each of us now, those are powerful memories, Stephen. Thank you for sharing those. And I think, you know, in a way, America is built on tension, right? I mean, democracy itself is putting everybody trying to, to come to agreement in a nation with hundreds of millions of different opinions. Um, and so in some ways, it's, it's I think, part of who we are as Americans um, to have to deal with those tensions and the the sort of part of our history that's heroic and the part of our history that's about challenges that maybe we didn't handle very well. Um, so I, for me, the, the, the interesting thing about the anthem, I mean, and I feel like 
Colin Kaepernick in some ways is a personal hero of mine because, you know, his protest challenged me to dig deeper in this book than I into the political issues, into the racial issues than I probably would have. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, times we, we look at these American symbols and we we take them for at face value. We take them for granted. We don't look behind for the history and the full story. And those those origin stories matter um, with songs of who was Francis Scott Key? What did he mean? Um, but also, I think what we do with those symbols going forward. Um, so one of the, the sort of most surprising chapters of my book was was about carrying the anthem and the flag into war and what that that meant and has meant for veterans and the, the, the ultimate sacrifice that many of them have made for our country and our ideals. But the one of the interesting sort of critical moments is the civil war in our history. And one thing that really surprised me in, in my research, I was digging into early African-American newspapers, and I found evidence of what may be the first time in American history that a black American refused to stand for the anthem hmm. in protest. And this was December of 1860. So it was right after Lincoln had been elected president, but it was before um, South Carolina seceded starting the, the dark domino effect that led to the Civil War. So it's, it was in that moment, and a woman who was a reporter for a newspaper in New York, an African-American newspaper, was going to a, a concert gala, fundraising um, gala for a, a Baptist church in Boston. <clears throat> and she was writing about this moment. And the, the minister, who was an, a man who had escaped from slavery himself, um, called upon the congregation to stand for the Star Spangled Banner, sort of expressing hope <clears throat> at the end of the concert that, that finally slavery would end. And this reporter refused to stand, and she describes it in this article, you know, until the country lives up to its ideals. And I think one of the, the points of pride, I think, that, that African-Americans should feel or could feel um, in the Star Spangled Banner is the way in which um, historically, you know, Black men and women and children have fought for their rights um, in the civil rights movement, but but certainly in the Civil War, mm -hmm. where where black men fought on the Union side, and and probably without their participation, the war might you know would have turned out differently. And so for me, the the way we use the anthem, the way that the song was a rallying cry for the Union, because it represented the flags, the stars for, represented all the states. Um, it didn't change the flag to to remove the confederate states that had seceded so that sort of makes the flag sacred and the song as its auditory you know equivalent as the the resonance that can be be sung and, and made audible um was part of what encouraged people to volunteer for the union army was what gave you know sort of strength to the union troops um in literally in battle where the the star spangled banner i have one account in the book where it's being played during a battle to inspire troops to greater heroism. And so, you know, in a, in a way, we can think of the Star Spangled Banner as part of, you know, what led to the, the end of slavery in the Civil War. And mm -hmm. so that starts to complicate, like, what is the song? And, you know, for me, what's interesting about the song is, is less that moment of creation and more what the book about is actually what happened afterwards, how, how people have used the song in protest. One, maybe the most amazing thing I've discovered is that there actually are hundreds of lyrics that have been written to the tune we only remember as the Star Spangled Banner. And one of those has a history in Michigan. It was actually written by an abolitionist minister in Battle Creek. Hmm. It was published by an abolitionist paper in Ann Arbor called The Signal of Liberty. And it's actually an anti-slavery lyric that ironically calls to the, the flag as a symbol of freedom in a nation where millions of 
you know, black people are held in slavery who are not free. Um, and so the key's association of his lyric with, you know, sort of the identity of the country with freedom um, was then used as a protest song with a new lyric um, in 1844 as part of the abolitionist movement. And so that's just one of, of literally hundreds of examples of the way in which the this symbol of the Star Spangled Banner has been recontextualized to argue um, contemporary political points. There are lyrics for women's suffrage, there are w- lyrics for temperance, anti-alcohol, there are union lyrics, there are, you know, civil rights lyrics. It's it's pretty stunning, actually, the variety. And, and that's really what I guess my book tries to, to bring out is this living aspect that the anthem is, has means many things and means different things. And it's sort of how we use it, how we bring it to life in American history that I think is the critical question. Okay. We're going to take another quick break and we'll come back, continue this conversation about our history, about our anthem, about the divisions that exist and how they play out uh, in the landscape over our symbols. want to also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Larry in Detroit, Harry in Sterling Heights, you are up next if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what you think of our symbols, of our anthem, of our history, whether we ought to be rethinking or reshaping those things. Should we be walking away from some of those symbols because of their close proximity to the awful parts of who we are as Americans. You can also go to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, and that, of course, is Whitney Houston with her amazing version of the Star Spangled Banner. We've got Mark Clegg with us. He's a University of Michigan musicology professor and author of Oh Say Can You Hear, a cultural biography of the Star Spangled Banner. We're talking about the banner today as a symbol. We're talking about it as part of our history and talking about the ways it makes us feel and react. Are you somebody who stands really proudly and gets excited when they play the banner at a Tigers or a Lions game? Are you somebody who sits it out and says, I can't be that strongly for uh, the United States or the things that are going on in this country. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation. Give us a sense of how you process the anthem and other symbols of our history and what you think about the arguments that we're having right now, some of which use those symbols as flashpoints. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's go to Larry in Detroit. Larry, welcome to the show. Good morning to uh, you and your guests. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just want to say real quickly, um, I have a great deal of respect for him as an author, and I do plan to buy his book. But with that being said, I think this is a great example of revisionist history, and I don't mean to insult you, sir, at all, but 
it, it, to me, it seems like we're trying to clean up Francis Scott Key. Now, I was aware of the third verse before you talked about it today and the other little things that I consider to be nefarious. It's the reason that he was a slave. He owned people. Uh, you know, he had a moral mind. He was a lawyer. He had a trained mind. So certainly he had to have enough ethics about him to know that there was something wrong with that. If you view them as less than human, then why were they sleeping with them and making babies with them and raping them? So, you know, that's how I feel about that. But as in terms of the flag and the Pledge of Allegiance, I do not do it anymore. And for a while, I, I was early on not doing it. When I had to do it at Tigers game, I would have my fist balled over my heart. Hmm. But the American flag, I fell out with it on January the 6th when I saw all those evil people beating up police, uh, police and using the N-word and just being as insipidous as they could possibly be. And the American flag was right there. So I just, you know, I can't hold the flag responsible for what some ugly person did with it. But just its luster left me then because I can't wear it because in my mind it identifies me with those hooligans <laughs> that came into the Capitol. So, so Larry, I'm really glad you called because I think these are really great points. But I, before I get back to our guest, I want to ask you one thing. I, I, I feel the same way you do about a lot of the things that you're talking about. But with the flag specifically and January 6th, if if you and I say we can't identify with that flag anymore because these hooligans, as you pointed, and that's a generous term, I think, uh, attack the Capitol and we're waving the flag around, aren't we then giving that symbol over to them? And I'm asking this really just as an intellectual exercise because it's something that I've thought about and struggled with as well. If we use that flag in a way that symbolized the things that we believe, right? If we made that, that flag more a symbol of a fight against inequality and for civil rights and for all these things that you and I believe and stand for, wouldn't that be the better outcome rather than letting these hooligans co-opt it for themselves? I totally agree with you, but I've had to let it go. To me, it's it's become, you know, as painful as a Confederate battle flag, mm. as painful as a Nazi swat sticker, as painful as the black flag of, of the uh, – uh, the people that uh, the uh, do the evil things that we just killed somebody for. I can't. I'm excited now, and I can't think of the guys those, those terrorist names. But all those evil symbols. But the good thing, Steve, is that I hope that we can reclaim it. I hope we can, because of the hope of America, and because of new people being born. Because I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old grandchild. That maybe we can reclaim the honor and the luster of the flag. But right now, it has left me. I could not wear it with any degree of pride whatsoever hmm. uh, because I'm hurt. I'm damaged. I'm, you know, I've got scar tissue from January the 6th. So maybe when I turn 66 in a month, we can reclaim it. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I'll give it my best. But thank you for talking to me today. Yeah. And uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Author. And I will definitely get your book. I'm going to eBay right now. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, I really appreciate the call. So, Mark, I, I, I want to have you respond to his difficulty with Key in particular and, and the fact that Key was a slave owner and that why would he not have known better? Now, he is born into a family that is slave owning and that has something to do with the answer, I suspect. But but talk about why we shouldn't say, look, this is this is who he was and and it's unforgivable. Yeah, I, I totally respect um, Larry's perspective and I'm really glad he called. Um, 
And I think, you know, I don't think that's an uncommon, you know, position, or it's certainly a, a justifiable position to take. And, you know, as I said, I, I struggled with this. And for me, I had to look into the the complexities of key and the complexities of the country. I mean, I think, you know, one of the previous callers said he loves America warts and all. Um, and I do feel like in some ways it would be surrender to, you know, sort of the forces of injustice to allow the patriarch symbols to be owned by, by any one side in the, in the sort of partisan war we're in right now. I mean, I think it's important that, that people who, you know, believe in freedom and believe in equality, you know, also, express that hope in the country, which I think for me, these patriarch symbols can be an expression of hope. Um, you know, with, with Francis Scott Key in particular, you know, I think I've been criticized and Larry's not the first, um, that I'm being too charitable to Key. I think part of it is I'm responding to sort of the, the, the very thin, I think, appreciation we have of who Key was as a person historically, because it doesn't make sense to us and it shouldn't in a way that there can be compromise around the question of slavery. But the first, you know, until the Civil War, really the, the first almost century of, of the history of the United States is about this kind of unethical, inhuman compromise to allow a nation founded on a principle of freedom to permit slavery to exist. And it was that those series of compromises, you know, that they're in our Constitution, which doesn't have the word slave in it, it uses various euphemisms like other persons. Um, but it, it was written specifically to try to 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 square an impossible circle. Um, and that's sort of the history of America. So in this way, for me, Key is emblematic of the history of the whole country. And to deny Key and say that, you know, somehow, you know, because of this 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 unholy compromise that, that you know, that we should cancel these symbols. To me, it, the loss is that we lose that window in our, into our history, to understanding of the tensions today, and therefore the understanding, the commitment to continue to fight this fight. You know, so I, I think that, that, you know, we could change the anthem, and maybe we should change the anthem, but the way that's going to happen is, is that a song is going to be written or embraced, and Americans are, are going to turn the page and start using these patriotic symbols in a different way. It's not going to be because of a a um, you know a congressional bill. It's going to be conversations like we're having right now, where we're struggling with these issues and trying to find a, a better way forward. So for me, it's about the struggle and uh, mm. the Star Spangled Banner, because of its complexity, because it brings all of these issues to the fore, still has value. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Larry, really appreciate the call and, and your thoughts. Let's go to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry. Yeah. Welcome good morning. Show. Great subject. Uh, I'm a flag waving gung ho American, and you know my father passed away. He was a World War II veteran. And I received his flag, too, uh, from his coffin. But when you watch the Olympics and you hear the Star-Spangled Banner, you know whose national anthem that is. And you see the American flag, the Stars and Stripes, you know whose flag that is. You, you see Poland, I'm Polish, it's red and white. My wife is Latvian, it's burgundy and white. You see Germany's flag, Italy's flag, France, you can't identify them. You see the, you see the Stars and Stripes, you know whose it is, and I'm mm. proud of it. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, Harry, I uh, really appreciate uh, the call and and your thoughts there, uh, uh, Mark. Before we go back to listeners, there was something you just said that that reminded me of another uh, subject I wanted to get to, which is that you believe that the banner could be changed or should be changed over over time. That uh, this this idea that it is a static symbol doesn't have to be. Uh, talk a little more about that. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I think that should happen immediately, actually, is to to officially remove the third verse. Um, in World War One, the, the sort of earlier um, standardized versions of the anthem text did not include the third verse, and I think we should make it an official and ex- you know inclusive statement now to remove the word slave, and and the, the ambiguity and and sort of injustice that represents from the anthem. I think that you know teaching the anthem. I think one thing we need to do is embrace. You know, lyrics like um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr.'s lyric from the Civil War, which calls, it's an additional fifth verse to the anthem. Mm. It specifically calls out the end of slavery as as the purpose of the Civil War, which, you know, sometimes is debated, you know, in ways that to me are just wrong. Um, the Civil War was about slavery. The um, And I, I think the other question really is, you know, what made the Star-Spangled Banner into the national anthem? and And what People typically say to that question is, well, it was this congressional bill in 1931 that was signed by Herbert Herbert, and it, it made it official. And that's true, um, in a, you know, as far as the U.S. code is concerned. But what made the Star-Spangled Banner into the national anthem is the way people use it, is the way Americans sing it. And that, that sort of sacred relationship to the song starts in 1861 at the beginning of the Civil War. Mm. And we could choose a different song. We could play a repertory of songs. We could play Lift Every Voice and Sing. We could play America the Beautiful at football games. You know, it doesn't have to just be one song. And I think treating patriotism as a kind of repertory would be more interesting musically, be more um, inclusive socially. Um, but there is always the possibility that a new song will rise up. I mean, maybe the first national anthem of the United States is a song called Hail Columbia, which nobody really remembers. Mm. Um, and that was replaced by Francis Scott Key's The Star-Spangled Banner. So it's possible that there will be another moment and another song that captures Americans' sense of who we are and seems to point a way forward that, that everyone can embrace. And, you know, so a new song could happen. I think the challenge is, is, is you can't just do that by passing a new law or having a contest for an anthem. Anthems are really sort of, you know, they can't be sort of designed by committee. It, there's sort of a magical moment of mm-hmm. a historical event that defines the country and a song and an artist that captures that moment. And, you know, interestingly, the first person I know who sort of called for this was actually Francis Scott Key himself. In 1834, he was at a dinner and he was, you know, honored for writing the Star Spangled Banner. And he stood up and said, you know, told the story of the writing the anthem. But he said, if, if, Patriotic songs are important to Americans, and if we need a, a good supply of them, then what we need is Americans to go out and do heroic things. And if, if we if we move the country forward, then artists will memorialize that in song, and that'll give us a new a new patriotic anthem. Mm-hmm. So, Key to himself didn't try to write an anthem, and I think the purpose of of those kind of songs was not endless repetition. It's really about bringing patriotism to life in in the hearts. And if that song isn't working, we could have a new song. I think the challenge is, is that the Star Spangled Banner has a 208-year head start. You know, there's, <laughs> right. there's, with the Civil War, with, with all of these moments of American history, that the song has been a witness. The song was there. Yeah. And that's really what there's a lot my of, book is about. A lot of momentum there. Yeah. Okay, Mark Clay, yeah. great to have you here with us. Congratulations uh, on the book. And uh, again, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk to the guys from Under the Radar and uh, about their new book, which explores the beautiful but lesser known cities and towns around our state. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.
We'll talk again tomorrow.